0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Tyler Adams. I'm the next generation pastor here at Boulder Valley. Really, really excited that you guys are here joining us in person on the rainy day or online. I know if you guys are online on Facebook or you're trying to be on Facebook, you're probably not watching us because we're having technical difficulties there. But follow us on YouTube. That is streaming right there. So, We'd love for you guys to join us on that. We're in the middle of this sermon series right now. It's called Devoted. It's after Acts 2.42. It's the scripture we just read. We had Eagle Lake lead us in. But it's basically looking at the early definition of the church and the things that marked that early church. And it was a continual devotion to the four things. Do you remember what these are? Scripture, community, communion, and prayer. We spent kind of the last few weeks, except for last week, looking at how to read the Bible, and this month, we're looking at a different question. We're focusing our attention instead on community, and then we're going to go to prayer later on. And so, specifically in that community section, the question we're trying to answer is, what distinguishes Christian community? How is it different than all the others? And really, for us, where do we go when we feel isolated, alone, and betrayed? When I was in college, I had my first experience of Christian community. I grew up not really going to church except for maybe Catholic mass from time to time. Uh, I got ex- uh, kind of sucked in that life of high school performance. So there was this avalanche of performance that came out of my way and I was like, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna be really high performing in all of these areas, school, athletics, um, all this stuff. And also got really involved in the normal high school things, So extracurriculars, including partying. And uh, as I was there, I realized that I had my community in high school, but it wasn't really a great community. So when I went away to college, uh, I actually went to Baylor for a little while, and then I transferred to CU, and found myself at a party on the hill in Boulder, realized no one knew anything about me. I was alone and isolated, and it was kind of in that situation that you might find yourself in, even as you walk in today. I didn't know where else to go, and so I went to the only place I could think of, which was, at the time, Young Life. Young Life is a parachurch ministry, meaning that it doesn't operate as a, a normal church, but it operates as an extension sort of of the church, and they function to introduce adolescents to Jesus Christ and help them grow in their faith. At the time, Paul Holmberg, who's now a pastor here at Boulder Valley was the Young Life College director, which is crazy. That's like 10 years ago, and, but anyway, I met Paul for like two seconds at the very beginning of a semester, and then he never saw me for a long time. Uh, and then I was at that party that day in my sophomore year and realized something's gotta change. And so through a long uh, kind of series of coincidences, I found myself on a service trip with Paul and found a life that I could only have imagined. I was put in a community where I found healing I actually had friends that knew who I was. Instead of these drinking buddies that I would just sort of experience on the hill, I had people that actually asked me real questions about my life that would walk alongside me in my darkest days and literally loved me into a different version of myself. And then more than a decade later, these are still the people that I call my closest friends. They're the people that I will call if I mess up and confess to, they are the people that stood up next to me at my wedding, and they are, God willing, the people that will put my casket into the ground. My question for you is that your experience of community? Is that your experience of church? Have you tasted what I've experienced? Or are you, as our lead pastor Matt said last week, maybe suffering from the epidemic of loneliness? Do you have a place where you can be known, a people where you can be loved, and a community where you can be healed? And do you know how the Christian community is actually different than all the other communities out there? Whether that's your book club, your gym, or even your biological family. For that conversation, we need to actually start with another question. And that question is what are humans for? Because how we go about answering that question is actually going to help us determine what role community has and how Christian community is set apart. So the traditional answer to what are humans for took a big turn after the Enlightenment. Many people in the West converted to a different type of worldview and lost their collective telos, or their shared story. And so barring from religion, science, Marxism, and neoliberal politics, Western society largely set individual freedom and happiness as the pinnacle of existence. Maybe you've experienced this. And as a result, it has become the bedrock for America. It's kind of what Matt mentioned last week. And in some ways, it's led to flourishing and dignity for all people. And in other ways, it's actually birthed an idolatry and a life that's not designed by God. So in our Western society, we answer the question of what are humans for with that personal happiness and freedom. That's what humans are for, happiness and freedom. And even if we were to say we articulate a different message, our actions reveal the truth. That's what we live for. We believe we exist for our own personal happiness, and therefore, unfortunately, many questions even about morality have subtly become just an opportunity for us to not hinder other people's freedom and happiness as well. That's why we go about living our lives. That's why tolerance is such a thing. It's like, well, it doesn't really hurt anyone, like, let's just let them be happy. Maybe you've heard these things. In essence, we have lost the grand story, and we have become the center of our own universe. In short, we are an I and me culture. It's all about I. It's all about me. But how's that going for us? As Matt laid out last week, not well. Although we have access to more freedom and resources than any generation prior, we also have the highest rates of anxiety, depression, and loneliness. So this begs the question, is this really God's intention? Although we live in an I and me world, is that the way it's supposed to be? For that, we're going to turn to the scriptures in the Bible, uh, to a text that many of us might be familiar with. I'm not going to assume that we all are, but it's Genesis. It's the account of creation and design. We're going to be kind of going through chapters one through three today, so if you want to pull that out on your phone, you can grab a hard copy of the Bible in the back, and we'll also have it up on the screens. If you've never read this scripture, uh, I'm not going to have time today to read through all of it. That would be, you know, my whole sermon, but I would encourage you, go home today, read it, see what I'm actually talking about, see what you can see in there. So as a quick summary, starting with Genesis 1, Genesis 1 tells the story of what God did. Kind of that whole chapter is basically, what did God do in that creation story? It begins with the verse in Genesis 1, 1 that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I would venture to guess that even if you've never been to a church, you've probably heard this scripture at some point in your life. If you were to list like top three scriptures that anyone that's a non-Christian in America has heard, this would be probably one of those. And so then using clues from verse 2, and also a later account of the Gospel of John, we know that God was not an isolated entity, but he existed as the Trinity in the form of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then in John it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This triune God existed in perfect harmony, perfect relationship. So before our I and me world of today, we see that there is one God in three persons interconnected. The remainder of Genesis 1 tells the overall summary of God speaking into creation and creating out of nothing. This is what scholars call ex nihilo, out of nothing, speaks creation into existence. And so God says, and it is. And then on the sixth day, we read in Genesis 1, God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God? For that, we kind of need to go to Genesis 2. So Genesis 1 is kind of what God did, Genesis 2 is how God did it. And so in Genesis 2, we see that God creates man, Adam in Hebrew, where we get the English word Adam, out of the dust of the earth and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. God gives this man, this Adam, responsibility to work the creation, to tend to it, to name the creatures. And with this comes a command to eat from any tree, any tree in the garden, except for one, A tree that's in the center of garden next to another tree that's in the center of garden. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, in this garden, in this Eden, is everything perfect? I would say perhaps not. Because notice the word that God uses to define creation. He never says perfect. He says good. He never declares it perfect. And this is where many people get it wrong. Because they believe God created the world perfect. They go, oh, it's perfect. And the problem with that word perfect, at least in our English language, is it implies a subtle, static nature. Meaning that this is like an eternal paradise. It's an all-inclusive resort where you can just sit by the pool, keep your feet up, have a drink, and not worry about a thing. Everything's gonna be taken care of for you. But if that was the case, if it was perfect, why would Adam need to work? Why would he need to work the land? I think it's because we image the, or we mirror the image and likeness of God. God brings order into chaos, and he has autonomy to create. And so God did not create the world perfect as we know it, but he did create it good. He didn't create it static and suspended in time, but dynamic and open to the consequences of the autonomy of human beings, both the autonomy to bring about goodness and the autonomy to bring about destruction. To further this claim that the world isn't perfect, but good, uh, God, we see in God declaring in Genesis 2.18, which if you've read this before, you'll see this is a pre-sin condition, meaning this command or this statement comes before sin has entered the world. So if it's perfect, it doesn't make sense. But we see in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for man to be alone. So if it was perfect, how would it be possible for there to be something not good? So I think it's as good as the world is, it's not perfect. Adam is alone. And as good as Adam might be, it is not good that he is alone. So God looks at the I and, world, I and me world of Adam and says, nope, we can't have that. That's not good. So this creative God creates Eve out of Adam, and the two now better represent the image and likeness of God. Why does he do this? Because, remember, God exists in relationship. And so should we. Adam and Eve mirror the relational trinity and are co-creators with God in his ongoing work to bring about goodness. But human capacity for freedom only, only results in goodness when it submits to the supremacy of God. And so when we fast forward to chapter three, we see another character enter the script. We see the serpent make an appearance. The serpent comes in and deceives Adam and Eve. He tempts them into eating from that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one that they are commanded to not eat from. Satan promises in verse 5 that by eating it, their eyes will be opened and they will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, Satan tempts them by saying they can be masters of their own destiny. They can choose. They can be like God. They can be free. They can use their freedom not to submit to God, but to be free to themselves And unfortunately, Adam and Eve fall for the trap and sin enters the world. Adam and Eve trade their relationship with God for a relationship with freedom. And in so doing, lost life and flourishing and took on sin and shame. Their insistence on choosing, on freedom, had become their God. Does that sound familiar? I believe this is a lie we continue to hear today. Be the master of your own fate. Create your own destiny. Fight for your personal freedom and choice. Be like God. And when we make this choice, we experience the same consequences as Adam and Eve. Further disconnection from God, looking less like him in image and likeness and being isolated from God and neighbor. But what if what if there was another way? What if that lie isn't the only option? What if there was a way to reclaim our God-likeness? What if there was a way to mirror God's relational image? What if there was a way to reclaim our positions as sons and daughters? What if there was another option than the I and me world? Desmond Tutu, a South African theologian and Nobel Peace Prize winner, uh, speaks of such a way when he describes what's called the Ubuntu theology. Whereas the Western view of humanity answers the question that we talked about of what are humans for, with individual and freedom, individual freedom and happiness, the Ubuntu theology answers it from a much different perspective, one that reflects more similarly what we just talked about in Genesis. You know, last week Matt also said we're not independent, we are interdependent. However, Ubuntu theology would take it a little bit further because they would say it's actually impossible to be known individually because you do not exist individually. You are only known In relationship to other people. Meaning that if you remove the relationships that you're in, you remove your identity. Tutu writes this quote. He says, Ubuntu theology is not, I think, therefore I am, but rather I am human because I belong. Ubuntu theology looks at the human just as God does and says, it's not good for man to be alone. And so the Ubuntu answer to the question of what are people for is instead of personal freedom and happiness, it's to be with and for one another and ultimately to be with and for God. This means that they create their model from Genesis 1 through 3 and offer an antidote to the I and me world with an us and we mentality. And this us and we model has concrete evidence for its effectiveness even today in our I and me culture. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but there's a Harvard study. It's called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. It's been the longest study ever recorded. It started in 1938. That's a long time ago. And they followed close to 700 men over 80 years to determine what the biggest indicator of a happy and healthy life were. Their findings were incredible. They concluded that above everything else, the biggest indicator, the biggest indicator of a happy and healthy life was the quality of their relationships. Not their economic standing, not their ethnicity, not their education, not their fame, nor any factor. It was their relationships and the quality of those relationships which created a buffer to make them healthy and happy. That's what mattered. And when you look at that study, even though it's not a biblical study, you can kind of look and see, it's like someone created it that way. Like, doesn't that mirror Genesis? Doesn't that mirror the triune God? So if you want to be happy or if you want to be healthy don't pursue it in the ways that our society tells us by maximizing our own freedom and happiness don't pursue it in an i and me way pursue it in a us and we way a genesis way in a ubuntu way So how possibly do we act as an us and we culture when we live in an i and me society I think the answer is we reclaim the adoptive family of God. We recapture it. We're not isolated individuals. We belong to a family. We belong to the family of God. It is woven into the fabric of our design. We're created to mirror the image and likeness of God, which includes our autonomy and freedom, but we use that autonomy and freedom to put God as the center of our life, to put him on the throne, not our individual freedoms. And when we let God be God, we actually can use our freedom to invite others in, not to be the head of the table, but to an open seat next to us at the table, right by our side. And so in this, we recapture our identities as co-creators with God and form communities of healing, which others can then capture, recapture their image and likeness and, as well. Let me share an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, that happened just a, a couple of weeks ago. So I went on an early morning creek walk. This is actually a funny day. So I was hanging out with Matt, I think, in the morning, and then I was hanging out with Jack. They're both Carlsons, in case you're wondering, later in the day. And I didn't tell them, but I was like, we're going to go to Tacos IAI. And I told both of them, and I was going to see if they talk to each other. But turns out they do. So I had two burritos at Tacos IAI that morning. But Matt and I went and got a burrito at Tacos IAI, which, uh, no free advertisements, but you should go there. It's pretty great. And so we went for a walk, and I was talking about my life, and uh, there was a part where I started talking about some of the health troubles that my family was going through, and it started triggering some past wounds in me because my mom passed away when I was in high school, and so I started thinking about this and kind of going back and forth, and I was talking to Matt about it, and he was doing a good job listening. And I just expressed how it creates a a what-if mentality, especially with me and my brother. Like, what if? What would our lives look like if my mom was still around? If we still had her on Mother's Day or birthdays or, you know, holidays, things like that where it's like, what would this be like? What type of nurturing would we have? And we realize that we're lacking that. We just, we are. And so then I go about my day, my, 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 kind of like my merry way, pretty much. And then I'm at a high school life group. And then Melanie Carlson texts me. And I know that like this day is really busy and Matt's gone. And so Matt hadn't talked to Melanie at all. Like I know, I know that. But I got a text from her saying, hey, I have something for you. Could you stop at my house on the way home? And I was like, okay, sure. They live right down the street from where we were meeting. So I finished up a high school life group and I showed up. And when I got there, I rang the doorbell, came inside, and she handed me a pan of rolls with a very characteristic Melanie smile and voice that was like, God told me these are for you. And she probably did like the hand thing because she does that sometimes too. <laughs> God told me these are for you. And, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so nice. I really didn't think anything of it. So I, I took it. I, I started walking back to my car. Put, I was like, am I supposed to give these to someone else? I don't really like rolls, but this is nice. So I put them in my car, and I was like, God, what was that about? And then he just smacked me right over the head with it. of like, remember the conversation you had 12 hours earlier? And I was like, oh, wow. And it totally undid me. Because I knew, Matt, Matt didn't talk to Melanie about that. I, I knew that. And here I was expressing that desire early in the morning, and then 12 hours later, something simple as some rolls totally undid me. And it showed me that God was speaking. He sees me, he wants to parent me, he wants to adopt me as his own. And not only so, but he's put me in a community of spiritual mothers and fathers to provide in ways I've always dreamt and desired. And then fast forward another week, I found myself in the roots room, right kind of back over here, There was a worship night, and during that worship night, Jack Carlson, this is where the Holy Trinity of Carlson's comes into the picture. (laughs) Jack Carlson came up and said, Tyler, can I wash your feet? I was like, Yeah, that'd be awesome. We were doing that. Um, That might seem weird if you don't know what that is, but it's really powerful. (laughs) It's a biblical practice, I promise. And uh, as he was doing that, I was just reminded of another story. Because a few years back, we went to Mexico. Don led the trip. Matt was there. We brought a group of high schoolers, and we built a home. We ended the trip with a, a celebration of baptisms. Only when we got to the baptisms, chaos kind of erupted because many of the high schoolers had decided to go get drunk on the beach instead. And so it, it led to this just frenzy. Someone had to go to the hospital. We were trying to get out of there in like an hour. And, you know, we're like, what are we This is a mess. What are we going to do? We ended up getting back. We called it an emergency student and parent meeting kind of the following night, which happens to be my birthday. We got into the meeting. I had the privilege to share the difference between mercy and grace. And then, um, one at a time, the leaders of the trip, we got down on our knees and we washed the feet of those students. It was the best gift I could have given. It was the best gift I could have received on my birthday. And then here I am, years later, in the same room, getting my feet washed by a high schooler in return. And in the matter of a week, God showed me that I'm both a giver and receiver in this beautiful family. I'm getting swept away in the holy dance. I get to play the role of son, father, brother in this adoptive family. I've entered into a community of healing and have found my humanity because I belong. And that is what distinguishes Christian community. Because it is the only community in which we are all on the same playing field. It's the only one. Because we know who the general is. We know who's in charge. Every other community only offers positional seats of hierarchy. Every other community wants to categorize and rank people. But in the family of God, we are equal siblings and servants under the authority of our Father and Lord. And if you don't have that type of community, then what better place and what better time than to start right here and right now You can be in a sea of people and still feel lonely. You can show up to church and still feel lonely. It takes intentionality. It takes work. It takes much time to cultivate meaningful relationships. So if you're here this morning and you have no idea where to begin, don't leave without taking one step forward. That's why we do the greeting time every morning. We want to be relational. Go introduce yourself to someone you don't know. Go take someone out to coffee that maybe you do know, but you don't connect with very often. Get involved in a life group. And if you find yourself this morning struggling with the pain of something in your life, we have a prayer team. They would be honored to pray with you. They would be honored to hold that pain alongside you and pick you up when you need it. Whatever it is, cultivate something. Do something in this life. The pull of the I and me world is just too strong. We need to actively resist it through an us and we mentality. We are the adopted family of God, but we still need to choose it or we'll never really taste it. George MacDonald puts it this way. He says, because we are the children of God, we must become the children of God.